Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind, that being two prickers in a thorn tree. I'm your host, Nicholas Lorimer, joined, of course, by the other half of your hosts, as always, Gabriel Krauser. So, uh, we missed a week, but Gabriel, you have been very, very busy, I understand, um, and we won't be able to talk about what you've been busy with this week, um, because it is... Yeah, we should be able to, it's just sub I've been called as an expert witness um, in a matter against Julius Malem against uh, the EFF. So wait, in wait, terms wait. Of hate you, know, speech. you know what this means, right? What? Every time you can appear on in in being reported in writing or referencing yourself or appearing on TV, you can attach the descriptor "expert" to your name. Yeah, once you're an expert witness, you're an expert. I mean, I'm sure they're gonna the the. I'm sure that I will be. Um, criticized by in under in cross-examination i really can't i really can't talk about uh what what the last week was like like but it was very interesting but yeah no, um, we'll wait we'll, we'll wait for that to be over and done and, with and then we'll dive yeah. into the guts of it i think it'll be fascinating mm -hmm. uh but until then you linked onto one of the whatsapp groups that we use for work a most spectacular article uh, courtesy of CNN, of CNN's uh, 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 writer Blake, uh, sorry, John Blake. John Blake, yeah. And John Blake, uh, I, I don't know if he's a front-facing personality, he's not one of their hosts or anything, he's I think listed as a producer and writer. And he wrote an article which said, Joe Rogan's use of the N-word is another January 6th moment. And he goes on to say that while no one was killed, and no one no no, no no nick let me read yeah. this out so that we don't want to yeah, sure, undermine ahead. this guy's way with words the podcaster joe rogan did not join a mob that forced lawmakers to flee for their lives he never carried a confederate flag inside the u.s capitol rotunda no one died trying to stop him from using the n-word but what rogan and those who defend him have done uh, dot dot dot. Uh, since video clips of him using the N-word surfaced on social media is arguably just as dangerous as what a mob did when they stormed the U.S. Capitol on January sixth last year. <sighs> I think it's amazing. The headline is Joe Rogan's use of the N-word is another January sixth moment, and it so is. Essentially He's trying to argue that this was a moral insurrection, as dangerous as a physical insurrection. <laughs> it's amazing. I must say, it's that's amazing. a hot take if ever there was one. It is so steamy and so, so... One of the things that I think is interesting about it is that it's based on some factually false premises. Uh, so the very next paragraph reads rogan breached the civic norm that has held america together since world war ii it's an unspoken agreement that we would never return to the kind of country it used to be the agreement enrolled around this simple rule a white person would never be able to, would never be able to publicly use the n-word again and not pay a price now one of the ways that that's not true is is louis ck uh, who, uh, who, who did end up paying a very serious price for for sort of bad behavior? I think he masturbated. But it wasn't for this. 
a person, but it was not for this. He had a, a famous skit. Um, and I'm going to keep saying N-word, even though I think for the, for the specific and explicit purpose of not getting this, um, this podcast yeah, in can, trouble, rather than some... On, on platforms, or, it can be a bit tricky. <laughs> yes. And I'll and I'll and I'll I'll make clear why I make that reason explicit in a moment. But so so Louis C.K. skit, um, it's actually a stand-up show where he he sort of sets out to the audience that one of the things he's going to try and do is use the c-word, the n-word, the f-word, um, and uh, the and faggot, which I guess you can say because it's also got like a non-derogatory meaning. Anyway, I mean, he's going to use those four <laughs> words in separate jokes, and then he's going to bring them all together in one joke. And his joke with the N-word is about like going to a coffee shop, and there's a barista there, like a white dude with long flowing hair, who's like, hey, man, can I like uh, get you anything? And he's like, yeah, can I get like a, a cappuccino? And the dude's like, whoa, yeah, I can do that. It's like amazed that he's, he's like, I've got all of the things here that I need to do that. And he sort of makes it and with the milk and with the grinding of the beans. And it's like, you know, decorates it with a shamrock on the top and like, you know, just puts two mm. little sprinkles of cinnamon. And he goes, and in Lucy K's head, he thinks, damn, that N word made the shit out of my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> And then can, he rewound the tape in his head. Like yes, I'm. I'm. I'm not trying to make the joke as funny as it can be because that would require uh, potentially breaking the rules. Um, but but he's like, you know that. Anyway, part of what's funny about the joke is that it really does have nothing to do with race. It's just like a fun sounding word. Another part of it is like I was just watching Die Hard um, Revenge. I think the one that came out in '95. Hmm. And that's got Samuel L. Jackson and Bruce Willis. It's not one of the ones I'd seen before. I was feeling quite sick. And so I was just sort of slumping in front of the TV. There's some uh, very interesting and I would say, uh, you know, like excellent conversations about race uh, that, are, that are way ahead of their time. Um, of Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, have you seen the interview where he talks about i think he's talking to some interviewer about how uh the n-word you know are you okay with tarantino saying the n-word in in podcasts or, or in movies sorry and um he basically says go and say it and they get onto yes. the topic of, of him saying it and then he he dares the reporter to say it and he says no no it's cool just say it and the the reporter that you can see the blood flowing out of his face. It's the most spectacular just like example of, of the way a taboo can physically affect a human being. It's incredible. Yes. Uh, and at the end, he's like, basically, even if I say it, they'll cut it from the interview. So I can't say it. So just <laughs> weasel out of it. But yes. Samuel Jackson is rather annoyed by this. <laughs> yeah, dude. And he says the same thing. He says the same thing as Lucy K's main line. And I actually have seen exactly that skit, Nick, uh, quite yeah. recently. It's very good. Samuel L. Jackson is not on side with CNN on this. Um, but Lucy K's, Lucy K's main thing is like, no, you say it. By saying N-word, you're making me say it in my head. <laughs> yes that's how language works it's not like it's going it's not like no one is saying it 
it's just yeah, it's because so... you won't say it. Now I have to say it. Either the context yeah, should justify human... it being said, in which right. case you say it, or the context doesn't justify it. Like if you're saying, hey, you N-word, don't do that. Like that doesn't make it better. You're just you're yeah. just offloading the work. So it's also right, exactly. not good. Also not good. Exactly. It, 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 does, it does drive me mad that for some things people it's it's it, it almost feels like an ancient kind of taboo about so let me deviate slightly in I think it's the Finno-Ugric cultures that like Sami people and the ancient Finns and stuff, they had this belief that you couldn't say the word bear. And one Ooh, of the reasons you just said it though, you just said it. Yes, no, I just it's said okay. it. I'm just saying it. It's in context. I'm afraid. Don't I'm kick afraid. us off. Don't kick us Is off. Is that the okay? Platform. Okay. But um, <laughs> you can say the word bear for a number of reasons. One, bears were sacred to them. They thought that these were like embodiments of the sort of of the like God spirit and all that. But also that some that saying the word bear, regardless of context, <laughs> might summon the creature. And that's exactly the way that discussions about the N-word. He, he who shall feel. not be named. Dude, this is right. J.K. Rowling was so good at making fun of this. Like the people who really take out Lord Voldemort are the people who are not afraid to say his name. The people who are really actually ultimately complicit in the dark force sort of nearly overtaking wisdom are the people who think, here's how we're going to deal with the issue. Okay. We're going to make a rule. Not to say a word. That's yeah. magical thinking. That's magical thinking that's so retarded that even in an actual book about magic, it's too stupid to, you know, like, like, the, like the heroes see through that. <laughs> like It's like, guys, we did it. No one can ever say the N-word again. We've solved racism. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but and, 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 so, so I want to, so another anecdote and then maybe a serious point. The anecdote is this, um, Trevor Noah, one of the first, um, so I was a fan of Trevor Noah uh, in South Africa before no, he went so, to the I US. I also liked him too. And I saw him in his, one of his, maybe his first showcase, uh, like he did five little stand-up gigs in New York City, basically for, uh, as it would turn out, the Daily French Show dudes to see if he could land it um in front of an american audience and because i had fancy friends i was sort of invited to one of these showcases and what was very interesting about that is that he, you could hear where the south africans were seated and where the americans were seated because sort of two-thirds of the show you know it's only one half of the audience that's laughing but he was really good at getting one <laughs> either the one side or the other side to laugh um and that was not a great well, sign and then a third of it was just so good everyone was laughing um and, and right, thought, but I think... wow, this guy's got so, and just to explain what was scary was he was getting the Americans to laugh at the South African jokes and the South Africans to laugh at the American jokes. It wasn't like you have to you have to be an insider to get it. It was like, no, he's like playing with a stereotype so nicely that like we find this as a, to be a hilarious way of describing America. And the Americans found that to be a hilarious way of describing South Africa, which is not the way you'd want it to be if it's going to yeah. be like that. No, I, I suspect that what you saw there was perhaps the reasons why he's not nearly as funny as he used to be, which is uh, playing to the one audience is a lot more, um, a lot more money out of it than <laughs> playing to the other one. I don't know. Yeah, something like that. But also something like this. So I saw him do his first, 
I, part of the reason he's not so funny on the Daily French show, I stopped watching it years ago, but I do watch like well, an episode. Not the Daily French show, the Daily show. The Daily, <laughs> Daily show. French show is the good one that we do. That's the good one. So, <laughs> um, very good correction, Nick. Uh, <laughs> is is he is he sort of explicitly leaned into not being funny? Mm. Um, in a much like in a way that Jerry Seinfeld would never do and Louis C.K. and Ricky Gervais would never do. Like Ricky Gervais, if you have an interview with him, you can't go four minutes before he tries to make a joke. Um, yeah. uh, whereas uh, John Stewart and, and Stephen... John Stewart went the most unfunny. Um, Colbert was always in character when he was doing the Colbert Report. So it was always kind of being funny. Um, right. But Trevor Noah tried to pick up the John Stewart mantle of of not being funny, but for longer stretches. And I think also with the sense of you've got a, a different perspective, so you're gonna have to do this anyway. So he was at a college campus and taking questions and answers, and sort of not 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 being funny in in like my subjective opinion sense, not being funny in the sense that like he wasn't no one in the audience was laughing. He clearly wasn't trying to get them to laugh. It was it was a serious conversation, right. sets of speeches and giving a talk, whatever they're doing. Yeah, which is a right. fine thing to do. Uh, it's just unusual, uh, and I thought an unusually confident thing to do in a way. But then the question came, uh, don't you think it's a bit silly? Uh, what's your attitude as an outsider to the fact that like black people can use the N-word and white people can't? And his and his re reply, and the question was somewhat hostile. It was, you know, it was like, I would say it was it was clear to everyone in the room that the questioner was asking this from the from the background position that this is a that this is a, a bad rule that this is somehow a silly rule that this that this rule is not good um and you know don't you as an outsider agree and noah very much you know put on his insider voice and and basically said you white people have taken so much away from us uh that you've come to think that you deserve to have everything right and so when there's something even if it's as even if it's as like as small as a word like you can't weigh it you can't you can't sell it it's not making you money it's not real power it's just a it's just a symbolic token of something but even that you feel like you deserve to have that too because your white mentality gives you a sense of entitlement to all all the good things that there is uh and what you need to do is get get over that white mentality. Like this is not for you. Uh, and every time you hear a black person say the N word, if you want to say it as well, uh, that's an interesting thing. That does so show that things have changed. Uh, if you like want to say it, not because you you want to put someone down, but because you're like that's cool. Um, that is change. And so let's be glad that there's change. But there hasn't been all that much change. And and what you need to do in that moment is reflect on how. You're wanting to have that thing, but not being able to have it because of how you look is the daily lived experience of all black people with so many things that are so much more important than just a word. And so just you having that experience can open a door of empathy into the black experience that can allow you to, uh, through empathy, understand where people are coming from. And, and that's the right way. That's the right basis on which to build a better future is a place of empathy. With, with 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 black people who have this kind of thing all of the time. And, you know, one of the interesting things about ideas is that um, 
you can if you put them calmly and you put them eloquently uh i think you can see the appeal of 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 bad ideas and and if you put them badly, good ideas can seem really stupid. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So what's so what's the bad idea there? Why why is it if it is a bad idea to say, as John Blake says, this CNN, you know, columnist who's also a, a producer of the uh, some of their documentaries. Why is it a bad idea to say that sorry I just want to pull up the exact quote so that I don't that there's that America has been held together since World War II by one simple rule which is just, that uh, all just, just a white person would never again be able to publicly use the n word and not pay the price I, I, Why is that I feel... a bad rule I feel like just as an aside, because there's a larger point you're going to make here. Um, if you think that that's all that's been holding the country together, then the country was lost a very long time ago. Well, that's the first problem, is that it underestimates, it overestimates the, the sort of power of the esteem market um, and underestimates really important institutional facts um, that happened since World War II. Uh, like the, some of the legislation uh, right. ratifying the civil rights movement. You know, I've, I have been critical on this platform and elsewhere about some of that legislation, which sort of basically made a world of capitalism for white Americans and a world of socialism for black Americans and the, and the sort of collapse of the, of the housing projects uh, has been much more eloquently spoken about by Shelby Steele and much more numerically robustly analyzed by Thomas Sowell than I have, than, than I could reproduce or rehearse. But, uh, the, the, some of that civil rights, rights legislation did, did exactly the opposite of what it intended to do insofar as sort of uh, making right. life better Trap. for yeah. Trap people in, 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 in the, dependency, the, poverty, the poverty, yeah, the poverty trap. Um, but some of that civil rights legislation was extremely important. Oh, yeah. I mean, America <laughs> used to have a whole bunch of states with racial segregation and where there was a pervasive uh, uh, abusing of people to prevent them from voting and things. And, you know, whatever uh, the current talking points are about the return of Jim Crow legislation and electoral reform yeah. stuff in the U.S. right now, nothing even close to the to the horrors inflicted on people in that period uh, is going on. Yeah. Now. And, and that that is a big change. Yeah. And a lot of that happened had to happen through the law rather than yes. through some some sort of civic agreement that we're going to diss people or cancel them or oust them if they use the N-word. Um now but that's but th that's so that's one side of it. I think the basic side of it is is the basic problem with it is very simple. It's that it's a rule that applies differently to different races. Uh, so yes. that's that kind of thing is a problem. Here's here's where it gets interesting though. Is okay. So I say that's the problem. Trevor Noah, everyone, you know, John Blake, they've got their story about why it's a good rule. Here's here's the interesting question to me: Why does it matter so much to those who defend this rule? So, in other words, Noah's question to this person in the audience was: Why does it matter so much to you that you want to say the word? 
Like, can't you, like, can't you see how small this thing is? Just give me, it's a tiny little thing. Give us as black people one little thing. If you don't want to give us one little thing, like, why does that matter? Why do you particularly want to use that word so much? Right. And that so does, if you, if you really, is yeah. that you're racist. Yeah, if you're really itching to say the N-word every day, like if you're finding yourself saying it every day and it's not because you're in a skit and you're a stand-up comedian, but like every day you find yourself quoting a story, you're like, I'm not saying it myself. I'm just quoting uh, uh, that Vitz professor uh, who said it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, then I think you probably, you know, then I think Noah's got a good question. Why do you feel like you have to say it so much, whatever the context is? Can't you? Right. <laughs> What's actually going on here? Um, but I, so I think that's a fair question. And I think that if it turned out that Joe Rogan was saying it all the time, for example, uh, then 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 that would be a serious problem. Uh, you know, if it turns out that like in his WhatsApp groups, he was constantly calling all of his black friends. Anyway. <laughs> yes, that would be. Uh, but like, and then some of them strange. were done with it. <laughs> and then some the of them weren't done. And he was like, oh, no, I'm not. I'm not calling you that as an, in an insulting way. I'm quoting Tupac in the famous album. How's it my N word? <laughs> yes. No, uh, if, 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 yeah. So, and that is a real thing, by the way, when I was like 19 years old, I, I would, or 18, I would say there were probably months at a time where I used the N-word every day in South Africa with friends, black and white, who also were using it every day because we were going through a phase. We were listening to American rap music. We all referred to each other as each other's N-words. It was like, and and I could see how someone might see that and be like, okay, that's sweet. You, there's something that you don't know. And honestly, there was something we didn't know. There's something we hadn't internalized. Um, we were We were operating at the thin superficial level of like a 50 cent album. I think, uh, and I also, think and also, the same thing with with bitches or B word. You know, you can be. It can go too far. Yeah. Everyone's bitches. It's not nice. No, agreed. agreed. So you can check uh, something think, by asking that question. Why do you want to say it all the time? I think. I think also uh, one of the things that's probably different between now and then is, quite honestly, uh, you probably hadn't experienced it yet in the American context. And I think that 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 kids today going through high school very much experience it in the American context without ever having to go there because I feel yeah, like it's our culture is more intimately connected. But back when you and I was youngins, especially when you was a youngin, because you know you're older than me, uh, oh. that that quite that quite sort of the way that Americans they have that visceral reaction to this discussion about the slur uh, is well I grew yeah I grew up with Eminem. Uh, right. You know, his albums were dropping Slim Shady LP when I was 11. Uh, Eminem show when I was like 13. Uh, couldn't call when I was 15. And he's and he and the Dirty Dozen and so on and uh, uh, Dr. Dre, you know, they're collaborating and they're, and they're all using this word. So I was imbibing an American context. And I remember watching yeah. the Bunny Rat, that Eminem movie, in fact, it's the only movie I ever saw in South Africa where people, after the end of the movie, stood up and gave a round of applause in Cinema Nouveau. <laughs> Which, uh, what, the Eminem movie? What was it called? Yeah. Eight Mile. Eight Mile. So I had that American context, but it was a very lower class American context slash yeah. super elite. It wasn't this, like, upper crust, you know, Ivy League student, CNN anchor 
kind of middle class, right. keeping up with the Joneses. It, it was like it, it wasn't polite society's view. It was yeah. not polite society's view. It was it was the hoodlums with private jets. Uh, yeah, dash the dash the hoodlums, hoodlums, hoodlums private jets. that were just hoodlums. Yes. Yeah. yes. So and and yeah, part of what changed is that I encountered this American point of view, and I respect that. Like I don't. I don't find myself in the same position that I did when I was 18 and 19 in that regard. Or however old I was, 17. Um, but but I think the same question deserves to go to those who say that there should be this rule where it's one thing for white people and one thing for black people. And this is a nice divide, right? Uh, you know, there's a series of jokes there's there's always been a series of where you know there's two kinds of people in the world those who divide the world into two kinds of people <laughs> right <laughs> and and i got to say i'm i'm in that former category in the sense that i think it's useful to see dichotomies but always to remember that no dichotomy is the last word that there's always going to be blurry lines uh, that you mustn't read too much into them, but they are used. Distinctions are useful, um, yes. and much more useful than black and white. I think is the distinction between people who think that there should be a rule that no white people can use this word and all black people can use this word, versus people who think that that rule is silly, or that any such rule would be silly. Right. right. So you might almost say the distinction between racialists and non-racialists. Uh, <laughs> So, so right. the racialists have to answer the question: Why is it such? Why is it such a big deal to have such a rule? And I don't think my argument is that that the that the answers that, that Trevor Noah gave are, and 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 he's one example, but that is generically the kind of answer that you get. That this answer is never true, and it's always known to be untrue by the speaker on serious reflection and this is the this is the thrust to the argument if you were to go in a in a neutral context right um you put trevor noah tomorrow he hasn't thought about this in a while or maybe he has because of joe rogan wait six months put him on a put him on a podcast and you ask him dude i've got this rule that would some that would have no actual positive benefit for black people but symbolically, it would make black people feel like they've got something that white people don't have. And it'll make some white people feel a bit jealous. Do you think that's a do you think that imposing that rule? Like, I know what this rule is, I've got it written down. If you agree, I'm gonna take it out and we will find a way to impose this rule, not through the law, but just through shaming people. We can impose this rule whose right. only benefit is to make black people feel better because of some small token symbol. Would you like that rule? Dude, he, Patrice Cullors, Alicia Garza, every, you know, like every serious, um, Stephen Colbert or Colbert. Right. Uh, you know, these they would all say that's terrible. That's exactly what politicians have been doing to black Americans for decades. We don't want a merely symbolical token kind of victory. We want act. We want housing. We want better jobs. We want whatever. Please don't come with that. That is the last thing that we want. Um, so that's one way that you can tell it's not a serious answer. Uh, here's what I think is a serious answer. 
I start out from the position, which I've articulated here, that race really is a social construct. That doesn't mean that Nicholas's thick, beautiful black hair, which I'm sure is going to stay on top dark of his brown. head, uh, very dark brown hair, is going to stay uh, stay thick and, and delicious for until he's an old man and it'll go gray before it falls out. <laughs> <laughs> that is determined by genetics. It's a phenotypical presentation. Those genetics come from his parents. You can see resemblances and so on and so forth. I'm also, you know, I'm not going to go down all of the list of what it means and doesn't mean, but here's a useful, it is so useful. If you recognize how, what we value about race, what we really value about race when we're talking about race or what we fear in my case are are artificial values, are values that have been created by conversation rather than by genetics. And if you, if you, if you, even if it's just for the sake of argument, because I know a lot of people, even inside the institute, I get a lot of appeal with this idea. Um, not in direct confrontation, but I can see, I can just see by sort of en passant remarks that that I'm 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 not in the majority in South Africa in thinking this way. That's for sure. But if you do just take it on for the sake of argument, what is it that you need to keep an artificial group going, like a soccer club or a country or whatever? Well, you need a label. You need a reliable means of applying that label. That's going to get you some ways along the way. But we've got labels for left-handed people and rules for applying. You know, That's not going to get you all the way. What you really need is a different pattern of behavior, a different set of rules. And every religion has this. It's every religion that I know of, on the one hand, has moral rules which apply to all people. Now, sometimes you have to read it into the text a little bit because you really get a very chosen people kind of vibe out of, out of some of the stuff. And it's hard to translate the word person. Like, what does Bantu mean? Uh, does that mean all persons or does it just mean a category of persons? How did it come to mean that way? person turns out to be an etymologically very, very confusing word in a lot of languages. Um, yeah. But I think it's fair to say that there are universal rules con contemplated in sacred texts about truly universal deities. As distinct from that, you have protocols. Right? So in Judaism, it's not wrong for Nicholas to eat some bacon. And if it is wrong, it's certainly not wrong in the same way that it would be for our, our Jewish friend Nikolaevich. Uh, that would be that would he would be doing a very naughty thing uh, as a from as a from Jew. But for Nicholas to eat the bacon, not such a big deal. However, for Nicholas to murder someone, and for Nikolaevich to murder someone, that's both very 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 wrong. That's both absolutely universally wrong. So you've got these rules that are specifically meant to, to pick apart groups underneath a layer of rules that are supposed to be universal. That's how, that's clearly a huge part of how religions survive. Right. You've got to the go practice. on Sunday, you've got to wear the cross, you've got to um, uh, uh, do so. Ramadan for 40 days. You know, there are all of these protocols. Yeah, indexed to what member of what group? Pray five times a day, give zakat, etc., etc. If you're a Muslim, and those rules, by the way, they don't just apply slightly differently. 
in an inclusive sense, as in if you're included in the group, the rule applies to you, and if you're excluded, it doesn't apply to you. They also apply in an exclusive sense, as in you can't go and take the catechism if you have not been baptized after a certain point. You can't go on the Hajj to Mecca unless you are a Muslim. You, they don't let you into the city. <laughs> literally. This is yeah. so these rules are they, there's there's an inclusive sense. There's a like sign only, on the highway that says Muslims, and then there's an arrow, and then it says non-Muslims, and then there's a turn off to turn around. You know, hell take take a left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but you can't just go and change your mind right now. I mean, maybe you can, and then of course, with those rules, they'll be like, you know, what's really going on here. Right. Uh, I love you know. I've often mentioned uh, the the great Catholic line: "Judge not me, and I'll judge not thee." Twixt the stirrup and the ground, mercy I sought, and mercy I found. Uh, <laughs> which is this idea: if, if you're a real Catholic, then you then you appreciate that all of this other stuff is kind of extra. All you have to do is just before you die, say you're sorry. Um, <laughs> Yes, I think that might be somewhat simplifying theological the theological view of the Catholic Church, but I get your point. I'm, not, I'm, <laughs> the I'm certainly I'm, genuine soulful repentance is the most important tenet. Yeah, no, I and so it's, but so it creates a kind of paradox. And how do you resolve that? And if you want to see a good attempt to think about that, the 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 great Catholic writer Ian, um, I nearly said Ian McEwen. That's totally wrong. Graham Greene, uh, in his book Brighton Rock, uh, gives it a bash. Um, anyway, so. So, so, so here's the trouble. So the law has said it's got to be equality before the law. So no rules coming out of the law to say which way goes what. This whole battle's happening in the esteem mind. How do you find how do you find a rule that you can that you can get most people to agree on that is like the kosher rule or the or the um, the Mecca journey rule? Or the rule about taking the catechism. Where do you find that rule? What can you possibly do to say, look, here's here's one way you can tell uh, who's who by how they behave. And the N-word rule is just such an obvious candidate. Yeah, no, you're right. Because you're in an environment where unhappy black gang stars have already taken this thing up as a term of and this is a very classic this is the classic esteem move right the whole idea of the esteem economy is born uh from braithwaite this australian criminologist's observations about how criminal culture works and that criminals are so alienated they are so deprived from esteem from the community it's so hard for them to get likes because they've been jailed They've been shamed. They've been blamed. So how do they get likes? They end up taking the terms of shame and blame. Right. And, and saying, I'm using this on you because we belong to a club. And that club is what makes us special. And that club then immediately, as soon as you have a club, you get a hierarchy. And so some people get to be more right. badass. This is, this is exactly than, like... Uh, when you first explained the esteem market to me, I remembered uh, the way that people behave on certain online image boards, for example, like uh, the one that came to mind was the notorious image board called 4chan, 
where people, especially in the sort of heyday of that website, would actively praise immoral actions or chaotic actions or destructive actions because they often felt like they were deprived of, you know, we're all losers, we're all weird, none of us have girlfriends. And so what really matters here is that we flip the whole None of us way have girlfriends. That, Turns out to be the preface to like every <laughs> really, really awful thing that's ever happened. Yes, no, that's definitely true. <laughs> um, I, think, I think actually Kevin Williamson wrote about that once. Uh, but anyway... Regardless, it was exactly the same concept as happens in prisons, uh, except instead of, you know, shanking someone in the showers and dealing drugs, it was about, uh, you know, I, can I make, you know, people upset at someone's funeral? Can I ruin a funeral? Can I do this other horrible prank on people? Like, just nasty things, but this was praised, and it was seen as a sort of way almost of striking back against, the, you know, the society that never loved us enough. It's very, like... Um, What's the word? Sort of, it's it's kind of like an ideology of feeling sorry for yourself. <laughs> well, it's a very lizard brain response. It's a little bit yeah. like you know when a heroin addict steals his mother's jewelry to go and buy more heroin. In, right. in some sense, it's profoundly unmysterious. Like it's so terrible, and you know that that person, if he ever sobers up, is going to be so much remorse, and it's, it's like so much. There's there's a lot of a lot to it that's like unnatural i guess is one word i'm tempted to use um not that the natural is good or bad but it's it's a kind of thing that sets a, a level of expectation it seems so surprising that people time and again will will chase likes by behaving in explicitly shameful ways uh creating so a counterculture around that shameful yeah. behavior but that just turns yeah, out to one be could argue that someone like kim kardashian in a sense started her career yeah on with front. the with the with the porno the yeah with the sex tape and sex also tape. with being very obviously about the material sort of flashy shallow life yes her and paris hilton yes um, although yeah I, I i must say i'm much more fond of paris hilton than kim kardashian i think paris hilton was is is one of America's greatest business people, but <laughs> in a way that Kim Kardashian is not. But that's not a discussion for now. <laughs> what take? I'm kind of curious to know more there. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get there another time. Just remind. Okay, me. <laughs> I'll remind you another time. Um, okay, so but so so back to the headline, um, uh, sort of claim that the reason this really matters is because it becomes a rule. I'm not saying that's how it started, and I'm certainly not saying that people artificially and deliberately uh, – there was no smoke-filled cigar room uh, where people said, hey, how are we going to keep like racial divides super salient, especially in ways that will <laughs> you know, benefit extremists in both the Republican and Democratic parties and will right. drive up yeah. a fiscal – deficit nightmare that'll make life really good for rich bankers and other people who sort of just win every time the government misspends money and will be really damaging in the long run to like poor working class Americans and and uh, and Americans won't be able to solve or see this problem or if they do they'll be distracted the next time you know a stand-up comedian spend, does a basic routine uh, in which you spend he, a lot of time on uh, on, on uh, Facebook or or wherever <laughs> You'll find that the prevailing view is people hearing, laying out all these facts and saying, and you see this proves that there is someone behind it, that there was a meeting. 
Yes. <laughs> there was no that. meaning. The ST market, it's the intangible hand. This is why it's so clever that they use the intangible hand uh, motif to describe the esteem market's movements in much the way that the invisible hand describes basic forces of supply and demand, creating dynamic equilibria, uh, uh, which while not perfectly do at least somewhat represent, you know, what people prefer, sort of pineapples cost more than potatoes because people don't want them as much actually and they're harder to grow and all kinds of things. Um, but when they do want them, they want them for a treat so they don't mind it being a bit extra and so that's where the sort of market price gets found for it. On the demand side, something like that is, there's there's no coordination for setting those prices. There's no coordination for setting these things but it's, but it's no surprise looking in the back mirror how it turned out to be like this because you had um, a sort of underclass pushback uh, appropriating the n-word since the 1900s um and when when there was every reason to be fully rebellious and spartacus about this um and uh and then it required or would have required lots more um shocks well not lots more i mean so many shocks in the right direction happened to dissolve this but as it turns out it just wasn't enough to to break this rule in fact this rule got reinforced by a coalition of of uh of gang stars and of sort of white guilt um esteemed players who who felt very special about themselves um because they could reinforce this rule and they could say look i as a white person have had a better life and i'm more powerful and i'm more amazing than like 20% of the population just because I'm white, but I'm also more powerful and more amazing than the sort of 60% that's white because unlike them, I'm willing to beat my breast right, um, in public and say that I'm terrible. So I'm kind of better than black people because of my white privilege and I'm better than white people because of my denunciation <laughs> of myself. The bottom and line so is there I'm you get the everyone. <laughs> white, white guilt is the best guilt and guilt is the highest virtue. Uh, therein lies the sort of modus operandi of the white burden supremacist, and 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 they turned out to have really disproportionate um, esteem clout uh, for 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 various reasons. Okay, so that's my theory, and and I think that the desperation of this piece. Um, in trying to, I mean, if someone wants to criticize Joe Rogan, if you're curious, by the way, I, I happen to see these pieces before the Fandango, um, the stand-up pieces, where he basically says, you know, he has the joke, the, Joe Rogan's basic joke is like, I wish I could say that. Um, but when I'm not on stage, I sort of, you know, I, you know, I can joke about it now, but it's kind of, it's kind of hilarious that like, it's a, it's a cool word that I want to be able to use. Um, so this is, this is a very benign sort of way to make a joke about it. The fact that someone's trying to make that out to be as dangerous as a potential, uh, disruption of the peaceful transfer of power between two presidents, uh, <laughs> as dangerous yes. as, as murder <laughs> and death in other riots. I mean, it's, there's something I, th I think that the key is to believe that person when he's saying what he's saying. That has got to be, you know, I think the single most important lesson from George Orwell, especially when it comes to racialists. If a racialist, if John Blake is telling you that if he is as afraid 
of this rule going away as he is of of a, a violent of a coup you should believe him i think there's a tempting kind of sort of play play racist attitude reason not to believe this kind of racialist stuff you know it's like ah oh, no no one can really be serious believe someone when they say that and it makes sense it coheres with sort of a larger worldview and as far as i can make out from reading a few headlines i mean the other headline we saw was like america's new biggest threat racism, racism without racists without racists <laughs> this is this guy's worldview and you should take yeah. it seriously they're, they're, yeah. And it's a lot of Americans' worldview. This is this is a you know top influence or tastemaker at at America's most left wing respected uh, uh, news platform, played in in airports around the world. Uh, this guy thinks that the rule, the social practice that does divides by behavior, black people from white people. He thinks that breaking that rule down is just about the worst thing he can imagine, and right. I have got a theory for why. And that's because if that rule were to break down in one of two ways, either this becomes, as I think it should be, like in South Africa with a K-word, no one says this thing unless there's an especially good reason. Uh, and especially good reasons never include using it to insult someone. Especially good reasons do include quotation, um, novels, theatrical spectacles, uh, stand-up comedy, uh, can be fair game, uh, you know, artistic, there's a, there's a sort of cordon sanitaire around the artistic arena where you can't make rules about what words can and can't be used because precisely what happens within that cordon sanitaire is a subversion and a recapitulation of words in ways that you couldn't even have imagined before when you were trying to make up the rules because artists are more creative uh, when all things are going well than lawmakers or rule makers even if they're just a steam rule makers. But outside of that, it's not on. Uh, that's one rule. The other rule would be, okay, this is fine for everyone. This thing has totally been denuded of its original thing. In either event, I've, I don't have much of a dog in the fight. I really would prefer the first version of just like everyone kind of drop it a little bit. The rap stars can still sing it. The thespians can still use it. Uh, but it, but it's, uh, and, and the standard comedians can still say it. But And this rule is much like in the world today, excepting that in classrooms in America, teachers would not tolerate black students calling each other inward. That's really where the change would come. Um, yeah. In the same way that they don't tolerate white students saying it. And there are, of course, some cases. In fact, one of the few inward sort of hate speech cases, pseudo hate speech cases, because America doesn't quite have hate speech, but it's got something like it, was about a black person using the N-word um, against an employee. Uh, and he was sued for defamation, and it was successful. So the law understands where I'm coming from. Uh, people could come up with a different modus vivendi where it's like, well, anyone can say it anytime. I, I've got less hope for that, but whatever, whatever, either way, the big victory would be that there is one less behavior to distinguish people by race. And I think it's really only those behaviors um, that keep the, the race thing alive in the way that's toxic. Um, of yes. course, uh, of course, people will always notice that some people look different and there will always be some sort of historical uh, football fan type, you know, uh, uh, silliness. But I think that's a huge thing. And so, the, and that would completely undermine like thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people's career. Like if, if race was no longer a, a big, bad deal, 
Um, so, well, the IRR okay. could pack up their stuff and go home, but we're the one race-based institution or like, you know, race relations just think tank that I think would be pretty happy to. Yeah, uh, I think I think a lot of a lot of others are would be very shocked at this. And so uh, that's why it matters so much to him because it would end right. his world. It would end his job. He wouldn't know what it would be like losing his religion. Right. So nice I have a, a number of a number of takes on this. One is just the idea of racial ownership makes my skin crawl. It just is just feels like a completely wrong idea. That a race can own something. A race is not a person. A race is not a like proper organization. It's not a thing that can have legal standing. So we shouldn't ever treat a race as though it owns something. But also, I want to go at this from a different, completely different angle, which is the my fear, and maybe you don't agree with me, that far too much of politics, particularly in the US and this is what people often call the culture wars, is entirely a battle about esteem while no one actually talks about policy. And the result of this is that what comedians say, what uh, TV show hosts say, what basically the esteem market, I don't know what to call them, uh, the, the priests, the high priests of the esteem market do, yeah, uh, is vastly more important than anything else. And this is one of the things that frustrates me so much about modern politics is it seems as though no one gives a damn anymore about what the law is and we only care about esteem. And I think it's profoundly toxic because obviously esteem is important sometimes. I mean, in the, in, in the, in the South, in the US, right? Uh, esteem was, it was very important to change the esteem market there because the esteem market was discriminatory against black Americans. But at the same time, you can't abandon everything else to just constantly argue about which words are okay, who gets taught what in a certain position, who gets the top show on some TV station, whether this comedian said the, a good word or told a funny joke or not. It's It drives me insane. And there is no resolution to these things because they are all esteem market battles. What do you think of that? Ah, okay. I I think that I think you were right, right up until the end. Okay. So, why, why, what was I wrong? So, so back in the day, there really was a very serious disagreement about, you know, whether a black person would be able to operate um, something like a machine gun or an aeroplane. Right. And that's just not a debate anymore. Right. So this so the esteem market really can change. So it's not just okay, the case right. that the American military uh so, so, had these so pressures me... and they had black regiments and white regiments and then some mixed regiments and then finally some pressure forced them nominally to change the rules so that they could have um black operators of of some of the most expensive and lethal material known to man right so the, the no, it's also the case people change. were like no right. man that's really, so, why so, so let me, ever let me, let me clarify because, so you can have changes that's what i was trying to say yeah it's that not that there aren't ever changes in the esteem market because as you point out there very definitely are but that none of the current fights that we seem to have seem to have a resolution to my mind okay uh, so 
And so that's he has why two the points culture wars go on forever. Go on forever. So two points. The one point is, I wonder if it's ever been all that different. I mean, you and I are <laughs> in the think tank policy space. So I, I mean, I definitely feel sort of as I'm getting a little bit older, I think the thing that makes me feel the most old is, is that sense that really important policy debates don't sustain themselves. Like we can find moments right. where we pierce through and we get some sunshine and people kind of care about policy talk, but the snap back to talking about personalities and esteem, uh, you know, having a clashes about what the, what the norms, what the esteem norms should be. That's just so quick. Uh, and it's, and it's disheartening. Um, Sometimes I try and look back in history and I think, is it all that different? If you go if you go back far, if you go back a few hundred years to before um, sort of constitutional democracies or well-ordered, uh, reason-responsive, democratically sensitive government, I think that you see, okay, you know, a caricature of the, the, the smoke-filled cigar rooms or whatever the sort of inner sanctum looks like where people <laughs> like us and actual politicians kind of, we try and influence them directly and they make the rules and, uh, and the plebs kind of are mainly watching Punch and Judy in the streets. Um, <laughs> and, and sometimes there is a political inflection and sometimes the, the sort of battle of ideas or the, or the esteem uh, forces really get very ruxious and you can have like the 30 years war um, you can have, you know, Catholics versus Protestants. And, and that seems to be what it's about. And then the powers that be Catholics end up aligning with Protestants. And then the plebs are kind of like, you know, I thought we were fighting Catholics versus Protestants. Love turns out we're just fighting, you know, for <laughs> this one versus that one, you know, so they can get disaffected or they can double down on their zealotry and you can have actual conspiracies and far out conspiracy theories and lots of magical thinking. But so there's clearly a disconnect between what's going on in the ground level and what's going on, in the corridors of power and notwithstanding that disconnect there is some kind of feedback loop between the two so i think part of what democracy does is is bring those two levels closer to each other so right. that things don't have to get all the way to like a peasant pitchfork revolt before you get a change <laughs> yes. of power whereas the byzantines did it a riot in the hippodrome <laughs> yes <laughs> Which is always scary because sometimes they take horses that would poo on the tiles and then get very slippery. <laughs> For the like horse horse poo so, tile, not good. I, 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 I take. So I, as it I, gets I closer, so 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 but the, okay. So but no, this is the background to the two points, and the two points are much quicker than the background. The two points are one: as the bridge gets, as it gets closer and closer, it can, in some senses, be more frustrating. But I think the basic truth is something like this. Insofar as politics is, is going wrong in a constitutional democracy, the underlying, if it's going long for a sustained period for like decades, then I think the explanation has got to be that there's something about the distribution of esteem that's not working. And then the thought, the sort of esteem revolutionaries thought, and I kind of came to this as, a, as an esteem revolutionary, is like that's where we need to make the change. So it really does matter that we win these conversations. It really does matter in South Africa that Helen Ziller's sort of thing about colonialism 
you know, th that was an esteem move, right? She wants to say, yes. here's a norm. You never say anything nice about uh, colonialism's legacy. Um, here's another norm. You see the bad and the good. I really believe right. that that is an essential ingredient to our politics getting sorted out because it's no surprise to me that ESCOM went through the floor. It's no surprise to me that our railway lines have been stripped and sold off and that the remainder has been turned into squatter camps because those are colonialism's legacy and you're not allowed to talk about anything good about them. It's no surprise right. no, no, to me that uh, it's and so on and so forth. So on the other hand, if we did get non-racialism, which is most South African, 80% of South Africans want jo jobs appointed on merit, 80% would prefer vouchers to BEE, 80% say they've experienced no racism personally in the last five years. If those values could just become the public values, if they could set the tone for ENCA and SABC and user yeah, Africa and Daily be, Friend, no, I, I agree with you completely. Things would be very that different. connection would make our bureaucracy much more efficient, and that would mean that poor people that are living really, really cuck lives would have so, a much better chance of living really, really yeah. good lives. So that's why I want to fight that fight now. The second point is that the fight never will end. We'll never have a perfect esteem market. And that's why we need guys like you to say, look, at this stage, you're getting lost in that fight. Um, right. And what you really need to do is just make things work. Go and administer. Go make the potholes fixed up. To, you know, make the lights I work. Think, I think one of the problems here, and I agree with you completely about, you know, esteem market problems are a big problem in South Africa. And I think, you know, they are also a problem in the U.S. Um, for, for some of the same reasons. And in fact, Trump part and of Biden. How do those part of the problems? <laughs> <laughs> but I guess what, what uh, uh, my point here is a sort of deeper dissatisfaction with the way that esteem market fights go. And I guess this is kind of really what gets under my skin. It feels like what's happening, particularly in the US, but also even in South Africa a bit, is that you've almost got like a, a sort of a play that plays out with the steam market battles. That's very, that feels very sort of cynical and like everyone's got to say and do a certain thing. It's a sort of, it's, it's almost like a contentless action reaction sort of thing. And I mean, I've been cynically joking recently that, you know, the, the, the Republican party in the U S at this point is nothing but a vehicle for selling mattresses. <laughs> That's because so many of the culture warrior, figures uh are you know they, they 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 survive off of advertising and people are drawn to their shows and the people who advertise with them are, are mattress companies yeah and it's the soap I'm, opera you know the, right. the whole reason so, for a soap opera is to sell soap exactly and so and so it isn't even really about an esteem market fight anymore what it is about is a soap opera to sort of keep everyone entertained while you know, to pretend like we still like, like, you know, there's some great crisis that's about to hit everything without talking about the actual great crises that are out there. Uh, like, for example, the, you know, uh, the deficit in the US, which, you know, kind of sort of grows and money continues to be spent recklessly by both parties. And it's sort of a vague talking point, but no one takes it particularly seriously. And their big social programs like social security and stuff are going bust in a couple of years, which will have significant yeah. social impact. It's going to be very hard for the rest of the world. Yeah. And but instead, yeah. you know, it's sort of like, instead we're talking about whether no, but here's, but here's, okay, here's the pushback. argument. Hmm. So in a lot of ways, the, the fiscal deficit in the U S 
the printing of money. I had a very interesting series of discussions uh, towards the end of this week with some with some sort of you know I don't know bankers and such like, and and uh, they were saying what I think we've been agreeing about for quite a while. Although, boy, has it gotten worse. Like, uh, there's a kind of bust that's already baked in. Right. So it's the because everyone's been scared of it for so long. <laughs> yeah. So it'll come, and there's and you can't really avoid it. So now the question is, not so much can you avoid it. The question is, can you survive it? Can you come out of it yes. better or worse? Can you learn the lessons from the harsh hangover that's going to come the next day? And or come hangover day. You know, what happens? And this was this was like a Slavoj Zizek point. Um, this sort of neo-Marxist, uh, anti-Marxist guy who suffered in the in the in the Balkans. Um under that terrible regime, but acts as a clown. Anyway, is he said, you know, V for Vendetta is the perfect movie to encapsulate how too many people think about politics. It's everything about how do you build up to the revolution. Okay, <laughs> now you've got like half of London wearing funny masks outside of outside of Parliament. Overthrowing the striking midnight. You've yeah. overthrown the regime. He said in his funny accent, I want to see what happened the next day. <laughs> And that's what I want to see. You know, that's that's where the esteem battle matters most is like Dr. Franz Cronier's thesis is what happens the next day after the crisis. Because if we go or, into that fiscal crisis with or as, this or as CNN idea, went, it's a very well, different outcome. The, my favorite example of this was an interviewer who was talking to a dedicated member of the Islamic State, hardline Islamist, totally on board with killing infidels, wants to establish the great global caliphate that rules over all of humanity. And the question that was asked of him was, but what does refuse collection look like in the caliphate? Exactly. <laughs> and <clears throat> it will not surprise you to learn that, well, you know, I'm more of an ideas guy. We haven't really thought that far. That kind of thing will sort itself out. These are the answers that were given. <laughs> But, and by the way, those might be fine answers. You might have a theory as a constitutional drafter. You know, John Adams and uh, uh, Jefferson um, and Hamilton and company uh, didn't necessarily have a good answer to that question, what do you do about refuse collection? But they did have a very serious, they did really try to think through what it needs to happen after the revolution to, right. to secure the peace in a sustainable um, and growing fashion. And, uh, you know, Washington was a great guy. He got his army together and he got very practical. And Adams was a great guy. He was sort of arguing we need to send guns with flints that actually light up rather than the damp, useless things uh, to, to Massachusetts. <laughs> because, you know, at a practical level, if the flint doesn't light, the bullet don't shoot. Um, so, you know, we're not going to get anywhere if we don't, if we don't hold off the, the siege in Boston and so on. And those, and that's important work. But there also really is very important work being done by uh, uh, Franklin and and uh, Jefferson in terms of trying to think, trying to think and talk and convince people about some of the basics uh, of of what we need. And it was like a big esteem, you know, the insofar as the separation between church and state was baked into the American Constitution. My reading 
which is which is not very deep, but I have, but but there's some of it, is that this 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 felt like an esteem this felt like a bit of an esteem revolution, and it felt important, and it felt hard to convince people, and it felt like if we can convince, if we can stop fighting about this, if we can just stop fighting about which sect of the church is supposed to be the official one, if we can just stop fighting about that then we'll be much better at solving problems like refuse collection. Now, I'm sure the caliphate guy would say the same thing. If we could only figure out, uh, maybe I mustn't do accents. <laughs> we could only figure out. <laughs> do you... that sounds, it sounds more Slavic than... than uh, it's than a slightly walk-nose Slavic. What was funny about this one is he almost certainly would have had a British accent because I think he was uh, one of those sort of foreign jihadis who had gone on jihad tourism but brilliant so as soon as we as soon as we as we bring the law in line with the quran of course we will able we will enable ourselves to uh, uh answer such uh, bureaucratic and administrative questions to the best yeah. uh, of know, any human's ability for we will walk Sh in sharia the law, sharia. And, and my counter would be you know sharia law is pretty comprehensive but it doesn't really cover how to uh how to you know, actually, like run things. In no, but I. My point is different. My point so, is no, the. Well, my point is precisely about the distinction between a constitution, a law, and a bylaw. And I'm saying when esteem market revolutions matter, it's it's like changing the constitution. It doesn't directly solve the law and the bylaw problems, but it sets a framework within which those problems are much easier to solve. If you've got an efficient right. and effective esteem distribution, if we just if we just stopped fighting about whether. It's a good idea to have different rules for black and white people. Uh, and and then we would have more oxygen to fight about the important things like what's the right thing to do with the next $4 trillion that gets invented by by uh, the Fed. And in that environment, you, you, know, you wouldn't spend the next $4 trillion. Presumably, that's my point of view. Um, so, so that's why... I think that it's important to note that there will never be a final esteem revolution. In that sense, it's like there'll never be a final new company with a great idea. There'll always be a next one and a next one. There'll always be a new party to compete or a new candidate. These things do never end. And so at some stage, we all get too tired or too dead to keep up <laughs> with the onward rush of humankind. Um, but at the same time, there are distinct victories and losses. There really are moments where the esteem market is shocked so clearly in a certain direction that it that it does predetermine what answers are not available to future political questions and yeah. where those esteemed debates are then also off the cards there just is no one in germany there is not a there's not a serious person in jo germany not even a semi serious person in germany who's debating the jewish question now if you go back a hundred years dude that's going to sound like a ridiculous proposition you say in 1935, let me tell you, <laughs> one day, this I'm not saying that one side's going to win the debate, but the debates, like this debate is literally going to be over. Is this, the Jewish question is not man. going to affect the chancellor election. It's not going to affect the tax rate question. It's not going to affect social services questions. It's not going to, it's not going to be uh, a talking point even for rhetorical purposes. They're going to say you're a madman. Things do change. Esteem victories can be won. I think what's frustrated is that en route, it does feel like, like high theater, just as you said, man. It just feels so predetermined because, I mean, of course it's,
predetermined. And yet, and yet, and yet, you know, I've got a friend I've I've mentioned before who worked for five, six, six years as a teacher in a in a prison, in a pretty high security prison in New York State. You know, most oh, of those so conversations crazy. were predetermined. Because most of those conversations are like, do this, nah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. No, but you got to do this. Otherwise, you don't get the high school diploma that you need to get like a decent job. You're just going to go back and you're going to be a criminal. Nah, 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 nah. You know, it's a lot of life is pretty obvious. And I do think right. that, I do think that it's easy to lose one's confidence, like in the thought that, okay, I keep repeating myself. So maybe that means I'm talking just as much rubbish as the other person. <laughs> but i but i don't think it's true and i don't think it's fair and i i think what is true and i think what is fair to say is that there is a right and there's a wrong idea about this um and if and as there were in in previous uh matters like like whether 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 america's going to be better off if it sort of chooses one sect to be its official religion there's a right and there's a wrong answer to that question <laughs> yes. and they gave the right answer and then it won, and and now it's hardly a debate insofar as there are religious separation of church and state issue. It's like a very different kind of issue. Right. So uh, there's something oh, else dude, that actually wanted to mention. There's a case for hope. Yeah, there's a case for <laughs> the audacity of hope. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I should have mentioned this much earlier in the discussion, but remember you said that this is factually untrue, the uh, – because uh, uh, our, our, our writer here, what's his name? Um, Blake. John Blake. Uh, Jack, John Blake, sorry, John Blake. John Blake starts off by saying, no one has ever gotten, you know, gotten away with saying the N-word and, and continued on with their career, uh, you know, in public life. Uh, that's actually not true. There is another example beyond the Louis C.K. one, and that is, have you ever heard of Dwayne Chapman? Go Better on. known as the dog <laughs> go on even further he's an american celebrity who let's just say people at the new york times don't watch <laughs> but for a time i think it had a little bit of a of quite a burst in popularity enough so to make him uh, parodied on south park uh, but Dwayne chapman is a former criminal he was uh, convicted of uh, being an accessory to murder um well i think he was convicted of murder but it's because he was an accessory not because he did the murder. Uh, it was something to do with the Texas law at the time. But anyway, he got convicted of this. He becomes very religious, leaves uh, prison, and then goes on to become a a, a a bounty hunter where he basically catches people who are skipping court, their court date, right? That's what he does for money. He goes and he finds people who have uh, uh, taken bond money, bail money, and then just run away and not showed up at court. So he ended up uh, getting on TV somehow. He had a sort of big explosion of popularity. He got given a TV series called Dog the Bounty Hunter, which was basically like the trifecta of, re of all the things that make reality TV show good. It was the Jerry Springer show plus cops plus, you know, uh, WWE wrestling all kind of together. <laughs> 2007, he's at the height of his fame and popularity. A leaked recording comes out of a phone conversation between him and his son, where he says he's complaining about his son's girlfriend. And he said, 
I don't care if she's a Mexican, a whore, or whatever. It's not because she's black. It's because we use the word, and then he says the word, but I'm going to say N-word sometimes here. I'm not going to take a chance ever in life of losing everything I've worked for for 30 years because some F N-word hears us say N-word and turned us into the Enquirer magazine. Our career is over. I'm not taking that chance at all. Never in life, never, never. And then uh, basically... He basically tells her to break up with his girlfriend. So there's a lot of weird stuff going on here. But before we get into that, he he didn't have, I think he took a hiatus from the show for like a month, went on to have it, got it renewed for seven, for five years after that, and then continued to have a career. I think he's, his show might still be running, the sequel to it, which is uh, Dog's Most Wanted is the current iteration of it. Now, look, he is in the high society here. But Dog wasn't really affected by him being caught on camera using the N-word in a much dodgier context than a, right. than a comedian doing a, a, a show. Uh, and America has not collapsed. <laughs> so that's a very good example because it brings out another point, which I think is, is kind of disparaging, tragic, and true. Um, there's something strange about stand-up comedy, which is that I mean, stand-up comedy is theater. Like, if the proposition is white people can't use the N-word in theater or in cinema or in or in music, then this is just like in live performance or in recorded performance. This is just completely bonkers. Like, you know, you can't like crash won a Nobel, you know, what do you call it? An Oscar. Uh and <laughs> Like Nobel Prize for acting, I like that idea. <laughs> and it was like definitely no, but it's like seriously, anytime you know, The Wire, David Simon, sort of arguably greatest TV show ever created. Let me tell you, Quentin David Tarantino. Simon wrote all of the of the lyrics to that TV show. What do you call them? <laughs> Words, script. I'm mixing these right. things up because they all belong within one universe, which is the universe of the arts. Now, stand-up comedy is, in a sense, the most. I think it. I think it probably. I think it might be fair to say that stand-up is the the latest truly genre-defying uh, development in in mainstream arts. Right. It came after. You know, if you think. What were the big moves in the twentieth century? Well, someone had the idea of like putting a urinal in the middle of an art gallery and ever since then we've had this thing called installation art or uh you know found objects and so on that was a new idea like no one had done that before everyone before had either painted or sculpted something before they put it in an art gallery this guy then dudes were like masturbating in the art gallery and like recording the sounds of it and that became art that was new that was original jackson pollock stood on top of paintings and, and just slashed them with paint and he had this abstract expressionist thing it's more dodgy. There's some stuff in the 1600s you might, but really, to be fair, it's new. It was an original idea. Cubism was an original idea. There have been these original ideas. In theater, I would say there's a chance that the only thing to, to succeed stand-up comedy as a, as a format of theater is the sort of in-situ th in theatrical productions, like Sleep No More was the biggest deal in New York when I was staying there, where you go into a hotel room you go into a hotel and the whole hotel is the theatrical space. And some of the stuff you see together as an audience in the foyer 
and some of the stuff you'll be let off into individual rooms and you'll get a little performance just you two and you got to run around there so it's kind of like choose your own adventure um i i don't know that anyone was doing theater like that in shakespeare's day sleep no more is a rehash of macbeth and there's just i don't think anyone watched macbeth in such a fashion where you get split up from the rest of the audience and spend some of the time but, so there are these genre defining things and that might have come later than stand-up i'm not sure it depends on your view of 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 eastern european theater and how how much it counts as being part of the world uh, many people don't think that eastern europe or russia belong to the world uh, they belong to an alien again. population <laughs> stay away from that <laughs> <laughs> um but the point is that uh, grotowski's poor theater uh is is kind of a presage to to stand-up comedy as is the sort of performative delivery of beat poetry in the first hipster era just after world war ii and uh and and it's sort of out of this as far as i can tell and and vaudeville that stand-up comedy emerges but it's different to all of those things because precisely of how much more straight it is vaudeville you know you'd have a guy who'd come and stand up and tell jokes for a while but there'd be one-liners and there'd literally be a drum kit going and stuff like that <laughs> right we still recognize that but you've never heard that you have never heard a professional stand-up routine with the whole time and if you have it's because you went on youtube and you saw stuff from the 70s so it is an original genre and to complete philistines I can understand why it doesn't look like art. For the same reasons that Philistines thought that Grotowski wasn't art, for the same reason that Philistines thought that um, mimetic painting or abstract expressionism or found objects or Michel Duchamp, every time there's a genuine e elaboration of artistic space and practice and genre, genre behavior, there's some idiot who says that's not art uh, because I could do it. And it doesn't look like art because art looks like all those other things that came before. And so art can never change. It's a conservative impulse. And it's one of the places where, you know, conservative is a sort of st stupid thing to be. And, uh, and, and the great irony is that the great conservatives, the people who mistake stand-up comedy for art, are, I mean, confuse stand-up comedy for politics rather than art, are basically the American left. Or the American right. radical left. Because they do, this guy doesn't think of Joe Rogan as belonging, Joe Rogan's stand-up skit as belonging to the same category that you just described. A sort of a, a, a private conversation between a father and a son. That's what makes it so much more dodgy. I yes. mean, that and the fact that he's trying to exclude people. But to start, if exactly yeah. that same series of words was in a play, the playwright would be in no trouble at all or should be in no trouble at all. Because it's right. a play or it's a movie about racism. Right. Uh, you, you can't do that movie without this. But they don't yeah. think of stand-up comedy as being like a movie. They think of it as being like CNN. <laughs> yes. And no, this exactly is a guy right. who works at CNN. He thinks it's the same. He doesn't see the cordon sanitaire, the, the stripping, hard dividing line between the art world where everything's allowed. And I don't know this for sure, but from... From, from the corner of my eye, it strikes me as very plausible that he mistakes it for the same reason that so many people, unfortunately, at CNN have mistaken it. And that's that they think of Colbert and Trevor Noah and Jon Stewart as the news. 
and yeah, that's exactly. where I agree with Not you. Performance. Uh, on 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 the nightmare of the esteem games that it's been taken too seriously the fact that stand-up comedians are as politically significant as they are i think is is a symptom of how badly stupid um elite media practitioners in america are right right they don't have to do that and they don't have to do that to chase clicks. They can chase clicks like the Daily Mail, you know? The Daily Mail chases clicks by putting, what did I see today? They said 10, <laughs> you know, 10 sex positions and how many calories they'll burn for the build-up to Valentine's Day. <laughs> or or um, it's usually, it's always on the side bar. It's never in the, in the front headline. But it's always very visible and it's like uh, uh, some celebrity who you probably haven't heard of before in a thin in a thong bikini on the beach that's the other way they chase clicks <laughs> okay so and it doesn't just have to be objectifying women there's a lot of ways there's a lot of like ways of saying look here we're going to be lowbrow here we're going to cover the entertainment scene we can do like cooking we can whatever there's like a million different ways right. crossword puzzles new york times still has great crossword puzzles and their purchase of wordle has not chased away the market that kind of stuff is super duper duper let the let the news exist within a broader realm that includes a bit of entertainment that is fine but don't confuse entertainment for the news right uh, we, at we, that stage we, you have you've made a cardinal is, error it's very good at determining the difference between the tabloid section and the news yeah people can do it we, it's we, just we the do it very well all the time. Can't do it. yes <laughs> Um, that but is a yeah, problem. What, 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 it, it, it's 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 this this example is crazy because I mean he literally says because we say racist words, <laughs> I don't want you to have a black girlfriend because if she hears us saying racist things, then we might get in trouble and lose our careers. No, dude, that is that is. I mean, so what's interesting about that case is it does remind me of. So so okay so. Here 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 I'll here I'll take on a, a slightly less confident note. Yeah. I do. I am very I'm very bothered by um, sort of secondhand racism. So this title, racism without racists, that's absurd. That is that is absurd on its face. Um, but here's what's not absurd. Consider the following thought experiment: You have a society where one person is a is a taste based racist. Okay, yeah. so that means he will he would spend an extra million dollars to have no white neighbors or no black neighbors or no asian neighbors or no whatever right. you want to pick your race so great, but, yeah. but he he this is this it's to his taste like in the same way that you will spend extra money for a better computer game that you like more that he'll spend more money on that super okay? awesome rgb keyboard yes super okay so he so he'll do that and And so the people who are running the restaurants, and you've got a and you, and the race that he doesn't like is small race, and it's got a small share of of the society's wealth and income. So then you've got some guys who are like, well, if I let people of the race he doesn't like in to my restaurant, he'll never come to my restaurant. And so I'm going to tell him his business, and therefore I'm going to. And that's worth more practice. to me. So I will adopt. I'm not a racist. I kind of. You know, every now and then I actually take some of the extra money that I'm making and I give it to the Institute of Race Relations. 
because uh, I think indirectly that might convince him to stop being such an idiot. Uh, right. You know, I really, really don't like what he's doing, but you know, I need, uh, you know, I need the extra. It's going to double my money to go this way rather than that way, um, and I need that extra money to send my kids to school. And and so the next set of restaurants further around in the periphery are like, well, we've noticed that a lot of people have taken on this restaurant practice. And as a result, a lot of people have developed this affinity for these kinds of restaurants. So now there is a statistical discrimination where people will say a good restaurant will is have this rule. Right. And a bad restaurant won't have that rule because they're the ones that are making half as much money. And so they don't clean their dishes very well and whatever. And so we want to be in the upper part of the market. So we go for racist rules. And some other guy says, you know, I've read the long tail. I don't want to make a lot of money out of one restaurant. I want to make a little bit of money out of a lot of restaurants. And that's going to do me even better. So he becomes like a slum lord and a slum restaurant chain owner. And the those restaurants are uh, totally free for anyone to come. But they are by design very poorly run and very dirty and very messy and um uh, not particularly healthy and they uh, you know all that kind of stuff so that then reinforces the dis statistical discrimination so you've got one person with taste-based discrimination which is the hardcore pure sense of racism then you've got then you've got a, a, a network around that person who have strategic uh behaviors to appease racists and then on the third wider room that kind of ends up spanning everything and reinforcing, you've got statistical discrimination where race just does become a good proxy for judging all kinds of things. If there's a neighborhood that includes that race, you can be sure property values are depressed. If you've got a neighborhood that excludes that group, those property values are higher and will continue to grow. The same for restaurants, the same for goods and services. Right, this is the point where the sort of workistas kind of try to say, you know, this is, this one of the things they base their arguments about modern racism on. Well, so 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 I'm saying you can't have racism without racists, but I'm saying you can have a whole racist society just with one racist. In the way <laughs> yes. that I, if he's if he's super one. super influential, yeah. And in the absence of him, one dude, you could just have one law. You could have one law that says you know people of this race are not allowed this job, or they're not allowed, you know, something to really disesteem that race. That could set up the strategic, uh, you know, that'll, some people will take that in earnest and they'll, be, they'll act like they'll become taste-based racists because they'll be like, the country's right. So I'm, you know, people can develop distastes. In fact, one of the things in the literature, and there was a Princeton scientist, a social scientist who found this, you know, it's like amazing how quickly people will change their minds about their racial tastes and distastes. Even they, like that visceral taboo, that same guy who couldn't say it, dude, you, you wouldn't have to do much. You know, give me like a, a long weekend, uh, a team building exercise with uh, people of different races, and we can get that guy saying N-word uh, Joe Rogan jokes uh, <laughs> very easily. Unfortunately, you can also get guys, you know, actually using the word in an in a ugly, tasteful, like in a, in a really hateful way, very easily. Um, people are not as robust as, as, as just as a matter of, social science it turns out unfortunately that we're not as robust as we try to take ourselves to be which is one of the reasons that it's nice to have some people around who try and comb the hair through and get rid of the nits that can accumulate of 
of, of bad thinking about race. And I guess that's part of what we try to do. But anyway, my point is that that this this conversation you've described where the guy says to his son, dude, I don't want you to, I want you to break up with your girlfriend. I've got no problem with black people, but in our family, we've got this habit of using this word in this way that's, that we know to mean something, but that can easily be recorded, taken out of context and ruin our careers. Uh, that feels like a, a strategic or a secondhand kind of racism. So he's not personally, I, I don't feel like I need to doubt his earnestness. Um, and, and that kind of racism, dude, I know that kind of racism very well. If racism right. is the right word, because my mother lives in, in the central, in the center of Johannesburg. And the reason her house is worth as little as it is, is not entirely, but in part because of secondhand racism, because of people moving out of central Joburg when black people moved in, really not because they didn't like black people, but because they were afraid of what that would do to their housing value because of what other people would think about black people moving in. Um, and, and my mom didn't have that for whatever reason, uh, didn't have that impulse um, to to change her behavior. And maybe part of it is the artistic tick. Not to, you know, someone goes and watches a movie or a play and they tell you what other, you say, what did you think about it? And they say, what, you know, well, I think someone who's like this might be offended. Like then you know that person knows nothing about the joy <laughs> and the tragedy of, of true artistic experience. You don't look through someone else's eyes. You don't report someone else's experience. You report your own experience. You don't live according to someone else's prejudices or mores. You do your own thing. That is a, that is a warrior code uh, that in our society tends to manifest more in the arts than, than in politics. Um, I don't I'm extemporizing about that. I don't know if that has anything to do with my mom's uh, decision or whatever. Um, I'll leave that to her. But I do I do think that that one thing that the woke guys like to talk about that I wish we talked about more was that in between space where someone is not personally prejudiced but they are having detrimental effects because of strategic or statistical forms of dis discrimination um in this instance i think it's pretty simple to say what the problem is just at a pragmatic level like if i was the son i would say dad you're a raging idiot that would be much more dangerous if she was white and went to yale like you should be <laughs> You should be asking me where she went to university. You should be asking me what job she does. You, her race is really not going to be a good predictor of this. In fact, it might even go the other way, like because there'll be a con conversation and a confrontation. We'll get over it. If she's like a sneaky white uh, social justice warrior. And maybe given the fact that his career, like he made it, maybe that's why. Like maybe if... <laughs> he did the whole thing that america does expect of, of someone who has been caught you know uh using a racial slur which is he did the whole meeting with uh you know black people community. who are described as leaders of the black community and yeah. you know kind of giving public penance that kind of thing which is all i think appropriate at least uh to in a certain uh, to a certain extent but um 
No, man, you must go oh. and apologize to the sort of the the social. You must go and apologize to the, all the white people at um, at the new school in New York. <laughs> well, I think I think part of part of it is, of course, this guy also was someone who sort of tried to hold himself up as a as a role model of sorts, right? He was his whole story is that he uh, he was the criminal who learned from his 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 bad life. And now he was this exemplary guy who had turned his life around and he was a tough guy who went out there to take down bad guys. Interestingly, he's not allowed to use firearms uh, because he is a convicted felon. And as a result, he, uh, he only uses beanbags, beanbag guns and pellet guns, paintball guns to, to take down criminals, which, is, which makes the show very exciting because no one ever, lots of people get shot, but no one ever gets killed. <laughs> yeah so it's oh man that does i yeah no so it's kind of a good ending i mean so he was he was being he was being a bad person he was he was yes. doing a bad thing and he got some kind of punishment so it's not, yeah it's not it's what i guess i'm saying is it's reintegration really, yeah uh, the, the punishment so much that i think was you know I, I, I also once again i crawl at the idea that there's such a thing as a leader of the black community um but I, uh, I I do think that it's important that in certain circumstances that we do have this kind of public. You know, this is a this is a thing where, as anti Twitter as I am, and we've had arguments about this before, I do think that there is space to publicly shame and do penance of a sort. It's yeah. just that it can go too far. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as it often does these days, or it often gets so unhinged from from reality that it just becomes stupid. Okay, so it's kind of, dude, it's kind of, I like that. It's a kind of good news story. I mean, I think John Blake would say, look, he did pay a cost then. Um, so he's not an exception to the rule that that uh, Blake issues. Now, I, I, to be fair to Blake, I think he's right to say that there is this rule. No one uses the N-word um, in a hateful or derogatory way, no white person, and gets away without paying some cost. Um, right. If they're if they're caught and it's publicized, uh, I think that is true, and I think that's very good. I think that conversation that was an esteem issue, that was a debate uh, that uh, looked like it might never end, and then it ended. And now, uh, white people don't <laughs> uh, uh, don't do that. I, I wish my wish my first prize, I guess, would be my first prize is really just that the rule is is consistent to persons um, because. You know, given the the positive side of it is, I just think that's like a that's an axiom of my value system, and non-racialism is an axiom of many people's value systems. So that's something. Uh, but it's not just a democratic argument. Also, the the sort of more analytic side is if, if you're coming at it from the other side and you're saying we should have rules that distinguish, that are indexed differently by race then you're going to keep those esteem teams alive. And the problem about keeping the esteem team alive is you're never going to have an equilibrium of esteem between races. That is, that's the, that's the thing that racialists, that's their problem, right? Is they, they want to say, no, there are these racial esteem teams. And, you know, at the moment for the last while, the story has been, you got to boost the esteem of blacks. The, the black esteem team has got to get more esteem and the white esteem team has got to get less esteem. It's not in the so nature of the steam sort of to survive this kind of thing. Right. Yeah, even even trying well, to bring like, down white esteem they, yeah, ends they, up 
focusing you on white in a way that gets you the perverse uh exactly thing. it's and it's it's an attempt i mean what what was uh uh thomas Sars exactly put me in my justice. place no but yeah also he said there was this old line in the south we need to put blacks in their place and then he said you know not much has changed excepting for the place but even if you the place that you want to put blackness in is is equality superiority inferiority it's all about putting black people in their place i'm against that and i'm with sal dude i'm against that don't flip and put yeah. people there is no racial pigeonhole don't flip and try and make it higher or lower or more triangular or more circular just join me there's one thing that must fall let's make that fall and then all the libraries can you know it's it's like either you 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 keep that idea and you got to lose your fire stations your libraries your constitutional democracy your sense of human decency or you can keep all of those things and just make that idea of 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 there being a right and wrong place for different races make that go away okay so that's that argument that's, and we've uh, gone on and i see we're we're getting to the yeah we we, we are for time so i think uh let's my segue is just be careful we're recording this on sunday night by the time you hear it if you're of the first to hear it the russian duma will have initiated its official conversation on the bill tabled by the communist party in the end of january which i discussed before the second largest party calling how can, how can for the communist that party from beyond the grave continue to cause problems for the world <laughs> well they're the second largest party in russia and they're not very communist but they are very irredentist they are the party that really wants uh the soviet union's borders to be redrawn as they once were uh they tabled a motion for moscow to recognize luhansk and donetsk as uh, independent nations or as part of russia um if they pass that motion then it will basically be impossible for putin not to further invade ukraine uh ukraine still insists that russian troops are in the donbass but also that they must not invade the donbass one of those hilarious paradoxes that only a wasp uh, could ignore um the washington post released a a survey which found that eight percent of russians think it's a good idea to invade ukraine and all of the rest say it's a very very bad idea so the notion that putin wants to invade ukraine because it would be politically good for him it would boost his popularity domestically those people are also treating uh russians like they're just not worth listening to which we at the institute are very used to because hey 80 percent of south africans are common sense non-racialists and everybody finds an easy way to ignore that in london new york washington Paris and Berlin. Uh, Russians in a similar position here, um, and Ukrainians, if anything, in a worse position, uh, because they're led by sympathizers to neo-Nazis. Uh, their best friend oh, okay, is Joe okay. Biden. Let's let's and, not let's uh, not let's not. That's my summary of they, uh, the state of play. But, Watch out for the yeah. Uh, yeah let's not for the uh, rehash this because you, know, you always do this right at the end, and I want to. But just no, let's let's shy away from that. So, do you have I'm just any... saying facts? I'm just saying some facts. Okay. <laughs> yes, Two hot facts: eight percent approval uh, for war, ninety percent disapproval. No, you didn't just and... say facts. You said things. You said things that were that were facts plus. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> facts. I'll try. But, but, but... <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, do you have any recommendations? Well, I recommend that you read. Uh, or listen to the uh, debate in the Russian Duma because it will probably be the determining factor whether there's a war or not. No. 
that's complicating. <laughs> we can all you know learn a little, live a little. Enjoy yourself a little. Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if a parliamentary debate is the best place to start learning another language. But I don't know. I, I only speak one language, so you know, maybe I'm wrong. Um you go. So I'd recommend a story on uh, the Middle Eastern English language website, El Monitor. Um, I mean, I've recommended the site before. <sighs> I've forgotten what the headline was now. I think it was, I think it was uh, Iran unve unveils new, or radicals very pleased with new Iranian missile. And basically, the story just talks about an editorial in the one of the very hardline uh, newspapers in Iran, which is celebrating Iran's new ballistic missile, which has a range of 1,450 kilometers, which basically goes from Iran's western border to Cairo. So, you know, it's definitely uh, uh, Israel, all of Israel is in range and then some. And the name of the, the, uh, the, the missile is the Kebar Shekan, which translates to the smasher of Kebar. And it's a reference to a historical battle in early Islamic history where a group of a tribe of Jews called, I think, the Kebar was destroyed or at least forced to submit by an Islamic army. So uh, the, uh, the editorial, yeah, the editorial goes, on to, <laughs> goes on to say, uh, quote, the new missile is, quote, capable of dealing maximum blows on the Zionist regime in any potential confrontation. So there's uh... a... <laughs> Dude, you know what else is subtle? Yeah. Okay, my recommendation, I like that very much. My my subtle recommendation, Liz Truss, um, the amongst our colleagues, very popular foreign secretary of uh, the United Kingdom, uh, paid a visit to moscow over the weekend where she sported a a fur hat to try and look like Mac margaret thatcher which was ridiculous because she's not margaret thatcher firstly and secondly it was above freezing Can't, no one can be no one can be margaret thatcher margaret yeah. thatcher is, is a one so that was Liz Truss's first <laughs> stupid her second stupid was that she walked into such a beautiful trap uh um, yeah, the the, the Lavrov, ambassador, not ambassador, the the the, the the Russian her equivalent, the Russian. Yeah, yeah, the foreign secretary. Affairs, sorry, yeah, the the the, the said, foreign affairs minister. You know, we've you. Why are you complaining about us moving our troops around uh, Rostov and I don't know Volgograd? Verona is, I think, was the other one. Yeah, and she said, "Well, because we don't recognize them as being part of sovereign Russia, and we never will." Right. And idiots. Dude, the world is run by idiots. Even the smart people who think those people are the smart people. She's so stupid. She's going to negotiate literally the 100,000 troops that everyone's talking about. Like, these are the two places they're in. She hasn't bothered to figure out the names of those two places. That gives you just a little bit of a flavor of what level of respect. Because yeah. uh, it's not actually IQ. She's got a great IQ. She's just too stupid. It's like it's like a, a military historian talking about the Battle of Normandy and thinking that Normandy's in Spain. Um, it's just sort of disqualifying foolishness um, and a nice rhetorical win for the old Ruskies. 
Uh, not that that's any good because it ups the odds of war, but you should check out my recommendation is on the Moscow Times. You can check out a series and, and uh, the piece is called Macron. If you just Google Macron and Putin memes, we'll put the link in the description. Uh, you will see the memes that have been made of the of the meeting between Macron and Putin. Uh, they were sitting on opposite ends of a very long white table. And people oh, made God. some I good love, jokes. I love some of the very, man, just basic, basic about the childish. Way people, the, the way that people set up diplomatic meetings is often so funny because there's all this like stupid kind of, you know, showy it's posturing it's going like on. It's like you're trying yeah, to it's, get it's like very, But it's very li lizard-based kind of thing. Yes, uh, that reminds me that um, of, a, of, of <laughs> you know, the Byzantine court. Sorry, I don't, I, you know, we're, we're 15 minutes over time and I start talking about the Byzantine court. We're not going to finish. Here we go. Here we go. But here we go. The Byzantine court, uh, one of the ways that they performed diplomacy was very much through manipulation of the esteemed game, right? The imperial court had this huge array of titles, just masses of titles. And one of them uh, translated directly to English was something like Super Special Extra Boy. <laughs> And one of the others, which is also bestowed upon, you know, either a, a foreign uh, leader who they were trying to woo by giving them basically this title, which also came with a kind of a salary and this prestigious place at the emperor's side, um, or they'd give it to a local noble to get him on side or whatever. There's another one, which was the very super special extra boy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember the Greek, but when you translate it directly, uh, yeah, let's yeah. just say that it doesn't maintain its mystique. <laughs> That is, you know, it's such a, it is such a tragically, it's such a tragedy about humans that in the end, like, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands or, or millions of people can be sent to their death. And when, by and a series of conversations that are framed in, yeah. We, we, we laugh at the Byzantine court, but they lasted a thousand years. It's not a, like, this is like basically not a, it's basically not a modern state around today that's lasted that long. Except yeah. Maybe. No, yeah, no, can't think of one. <laughs> so. No, it really, it, what people think is ultimately what matters. Yeah. Because you can have the best machine in the world. If you don't turn it on, it's not going to work. You can have the best weather conditions. If you don't plant the seed, it's not going to, you're not going to get a harvest. It really matters what people think. And people turn out, beg your pardon, to all be monkeys, barely fallen out of the tree recently habituated in, in habits, the, the old Latin word for wearing clothes, you know? But beneath our clothes, we're still a bunch of flipping monkeys. And so we try and make our clothes sometimes mean more than they possibly can and our titles and our, <laughs> and our tables. That sounds, that sounds like an ending to a, to a play, like the monologue <laughs> at the end of a play. But anyway, okay, cool. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you're still with us, uh, and we hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, yeah, we'll see you soon on uh, Two Crickets on a Thorn Tree. Keep the flag of liberty flying. Kr -kr